Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your hosts. My name is Kisekis Kafambala, and I think the role of um, public intellectuals in society is actually multiple in nature. Firstly, I think public intellectuals provide a diversity of opinions, um, diversity of thought, which is of value to society. Because without that plurality of opinions means that society and citizens would only hear one side of the story. Public intellectuals are also in their own ways opinion makers. Um, they set the stage for questioning uh, states and governments in terms of what it is that they're doing. Uh, they provide checks in their own ways, state authority and uh, government um, power. Um, as you know, the government and the media in some ways have a much louder voice um, and therefore are much more able to translate their views and opinions and policies on society. And public um, intellectuals, the good um, inter- public intellectuals, will bring um, a different opinion a different thought, in particular when uh, governments are going in the wrong direction um, on, on various issues, whether they're um, human rights issues, whether they're economic policies, etc. So, um, as I said, uh, the role of a public intellectual um, is, is, is multiple in nature. They play multiple roles, um, and it's key to um, creating debate within society. <laughs> Atambile Masola is a PhD candidate working on research on Noni Jabavu. She's a lecturer at the University of Pretoria's Faculty of Education. She's also a Mandela Road scholar and holds a master's in education. She's had five years of experience working as a teacher and recently presented a paper on Nonsizi Mgueto and Charlotte Matlege at the African Literature Colloquium hosted at the School of African Languages at the university currently known as Rhodes. Today she talks to me about the role of public intellectuals. Welcome to our show, Atta. Thanks for having me, Nosipo. So I'm really glad you could join us today, and it's always wonderful to talk to friends about the amazing work that they do. Um, The first thing that I just want to ask you is, could you tell me about your interest and journey into writing and public speaking? How did you begin with this writing journey and who do you write for and why? I started off, I guess I've always kind of seen myself as a writer through school. I was told I was good at it. And so I built some confidence over that. But it was really when I started blogging that I became more um, interested in in public spaces, I guess, and public um, spaces of discourse. And I started blogging while I was doing my master's. And I was mostly trying and struggling with the idea of how to write and think through my master's. And so it felt easier to kind of write about it in snippets of 800 words from time to time for a few people. So that's how I got into writing um, and, and blogging. And I think I was mostly writing for myself. And the kind of idea that there would be an audience was partly scary, but 
um, it's an imagined audience because sometimes people would comment, sometimes people wouldn't. So it felt like it, it was mostly for me and um, for my family and the people um, who I would send the link to. It wasn't often. And it was mostly just for processing my, my thoughts. Do you call yourself a public intellectual? Because definitely that's not. Definitely not. Definitely not. What do, you think um, a, what do you think a public intellectual is? I mean, you are quite prolific. You write for the Mail and Guardian, the journalist, your blog. You've spoken on public stages across the country. So how do you interpret what you do? Well, I'm not sure yet, but I don't see myself as a public intellectual because I have to think of people like Professor Ndablo Ndebele. People say he's a public intellectual, and there's a huge difference between him and I, I guess, purely because of generation and how prolific he's been and his experience. And I guess I've done a bit of reading about critiquing the idea of being a public intellectual, thinking about, um, I think, Bell Hooks writes about it and the kind of complexities and what does it really mean to be a public intellectual who has access to the public and whose ideas really matter. So I don't really consider myself because I guess the space has also shifted in the sense that most of my writing has been blogging and op-eds and a few articles in some books. But um, And I guess because of my age or I guess some of the issues that I write about, they still feel quite marginal sometimes. Hmm. So I don't know if I am... A public intellectual. I'm often very surprised when people um, read my stuff, I guess, and I'm, I'm also surprised when people take it seriously because I'm writing for myself to process things. I find the title quite scary um, and I find it quite, um, I don't know, I, I, people often say we need a public intellectual. I guess one of the critiques that Bell Hooks does make is this idea of, well, who is it? And for a long time, it's often been men um, who are owning the space. I mean, we have a long history in South Africa through the newspapers. Um, and it's only more recently that I've discovered that there are, in fact, more women who were even occupying that space as writers. So I don't know. I think maybe the gender thing and the, the, the aspect of my the, the, the breadth of my experience, I'm still not confident to put my hand up when people say who is a public intellectual. There is a degree of, of humility in, in your in your response. <laughs> Um, but I also think it's it's important for for the, for these spaces to be claimed by mm. young people. Mm. Uh, so there's a generational aspect, as you said, and also very mm. importantly, a gendered and raced aspect of mm. who do we consider to be a voice or have the rights to to speak on particular things. And yeah. uh, you raise such an important thing about a uh, uh, point about the particular publics and audiences that are spoken mm. to through these various uh, forums. But I'm going to get to that in a second because I really want us to okay. unpack that. Uh, but before mm -hmm. we do that, do you think there is a difference between being a public intellectual and being an opinionista? The latter often derided as, you know, people who write think pieces are often marginalized mm. and called opinionistas. Do you think that such a distinction actually even makes a difference anymore? So if we do take the idea of a public intellectual seriously, um, and I guess there are lots of people who have written about this. I think um, Ajima also wrote about this. It largely stems from people who are in academia who then kind of write their work or their journal and trying to make their knowledge or the, the kind of highbrow knowledge of academia relevant to a more popular audience. Mm. So there's that distinction. But I think opinionists, I think, are seen as people, and I don't want to mention any names, but people who are really kind of framing the popular conversation and, and kind of taking sometimes quite complex issues and, and breaking it down. So mm. this idea of what we think of as knowledge and how knowledge should be packaged in order for it to be 
to people. So the idea of packaging knowledge and putting it in a journal and packaging knowledge and putting it in something that looks like the Daily Maverick or a, a blog, even something that a blog that isn't maybe a personal blog, something like the journalist. It's just it's how we package that knowledge. So I think there is a difference in terms of who the audience is and who or what kind of the ideas that they write. Um, so, for example, we often think of people who are writing about politics as being public intellectuals and people who are just writing about um, pop culture as being opinionists. And I don't know if it's a necessarily a neat, it should be that neat or it should be that um, separated because then it goes back to, well, there's certain um, knowledge that should be produced by certain people mm. and there's certain knowledge that can be produced for certain people. And it's all, and some of it is classed maybe. Definitely, the differentiation I don't think is very helpful even though it's there and we kind of talk about it, but I don't know if we're getting to the root of what those distinctions mean. What do you think is the role of being an expert in this domain of being a public intellectual? Do I need to be the world's foremost intellectual on Lacan, Foucault, Freud in mm. order to participate in particular conversations, whether they're about psychoanalysis or... Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, that's part of the trick with all this whose knowledge matters, right? Because for a long time, I think that's what it has meant being an expertise. How many people or um, scholars from the West you can quote or what um, kind of knowledge you, you possess that you're sharing. For me, it's about who experiences matter and how do we shape those experiences and put them out there for people to read about, for people to find interesting and for people to value. Mm. Um, and I think it's always been about um, different voices being in the public domain. So when I started blogging, it was also the same time I was writing for the Daily Dispatch, um, the newspaper in, in London. And I, the response that I got from a lot of people was, oh, you know, you, it's a few of you doing this. And I thought, how is this possible in the 2000s in a country full of black women who are educated, who are writers, that there are certain spaces where our voices are not seen? And I think it was because of that there were certain people who we saw as experts. Mm. So perhaps I wasn't affiliated enough or I wasn't educated enough at the time or I, I didn't have the right kind of experience. And I think conversations about even just young people and young women being in spaces has become such a political um, topic and has become such an, an important topic because it's about whose voices are out there. So I'm not quite fussed about this idea of expertise. I think once you start talking about expertise, it's about a way of controlling and saying, well, if you don't have expertise, then your voice doesn't matter. And I think that's a very dangerous um, position to take mm. because I think everyone is an expert on their own life. Everyone's experience must count for something and must count for it to be put out there. We may not agree with it. We may not identify with it. But I think there, there needs to be a space if we're going to be talking about um, the public space and the public discourse where we have a variety of voices um, we can engage with and we can see the variety of experiences and the breadth of um, opinions that do exist. But if the same people are getting those spaces, then I think we're going to get into trouble and, and it's, it's just not valuable for anybody. I'm always really struggling with balancing, firstly, this kind of call of saying our experiences matter, right? That we all mm. have different experiences and speaking from our own lived positionalities, right? But then mm. also at the same time recognizing that often it's women, it's often people of color, for lack of a better phrase, who are mm. asked to only speak from their own particular lived experience. So abstract thinking and you know mm -hmm. just kind of musings outside of one's particular positionalities 
becomes yeah. something that then is again relegated to only a particular kind of body which has always been central yeah. in yeah. intellectual life which has been the white male is then seen to yeah. almost transcend the body and lived experience like how do you square that in your own work and in your yeah. own thinking about these issues i think that i mean that's a very good point and i, I guess maybe for me to clarify what i mean by experience i don't think I mean, part of my experience, I think, as a black woman, is to think about abstract things and to discuss concepts or whatever it is. We kind of think of these abstract things. So even part of my experience is thinking about these things. Mm. And then how do I put that out there? So by that, I don't necessarily mean it's navel-gazing because I myself get very impatient with people who are if we're only ever kind of navel-gazing and your experience becomes the mode in which also you, you, you foreground your experience. Because then that is very limiting. Experience, I mean, I have, I've seen this thing. How do I write about it in different ways? Maybe it doesn't affect me directly. How do I see it? And how do other people say they see it? And so it's also about how we construct our thoughts, perhaps, in a way that is helpful. So I'm not just saying, oh, I'm a black woman. This is what I'm thinking. And therefore, it's important. I'm saying, I happen to be in this body. I see this thing. It could be modernism, it could be the public transport system, it could be race, it could be anything, but I can see it and I experience it in various ways, but I've also been thinking about it in various ways. And perhaps that's what I mean, because I think there definitely is a danger where we're just navel-gazing and mm. it's all about me, me, me. And then, of course, we, we, we run into that trap where people then start positioning us as the people who do that kind of intellectual labor, and that's the only kind of intellectual labor we can do. Mm. And I, I, th I think it's so important that you're saying, Nguti, it is part of your experience to think of abstract thought. I think the, the question I also posed to you poses a false opposition, right, between yeah. abstract yeah. thinking and lived experience. And I'm really glad that you, 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 you really brought to the fore that people, all kinds of differently positioned, different bodied people, think of both, you know, bread and butter issues and also abstract uh, concepts and thoughts. Mm. So another thing that I really wanted to ask you about is how do you see the relationship between your engagement in, with different publics uh, as an intellectual as well as activism? Are, are the two synonymous? I've always struggled with that one because there's this idea that I'm a blogger and therefore I'm an activist just because I'm doing a public thing. And I'm not entirely convinced by it. And that's, I'm assuming that I'm, I'm reading your question correctly. Um, I think... For me, part of the work is the activism, and I don't want to create this dichotomy. So activism is work that we do out there. I mm. think part of writing is part of the activism, and I'm, I'm still not quite clear how I separate them in my mind. But I definitely think because of the political moments that we're in, our writing ends up being political because of the very few spaces that we have to be able to do this work. And so I think until we kind of see a reverse, a, a kind of a shift, in these, the, who is in these spaces, maybe writing won't necessarily be seen as activism, but will be seen as an extension of it. Mm. Um, but I'm, 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 at the moment, I'm not convinced. I don't think that when I write a blog, it's activism. I think it's intellectual labor of a different kind. And I think maybe there's a critique to that in terms of how I think of activism as doing and writing as thinking. Mm. even though it is doing. So, I don't know, I'm still thinking through that one. And, and I think uh, womanists and feminists around the world have kind of brought to the fore that a lot of activism as putting one's body on the line, as it were, is a very masculinist mm. way of understanding activism. And so mm. we come up with these notions of writing as rioting, um, oh, yeah. which in and of itself can be disruptive and open up yeah. different spaces for 
people who otherwise might not be able to be in the streets and put their yeah, bodies on the yeah. line, as it were. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm, I'm, I think that's part of what I'm struggling with because, mm. and I guess it's also, again, the whole binary even of writing and rioting. So for a long time, people have also been talking about, so the white feminists write about what the black feminists are doing out there. You know, mm. then it also creates that kind of binary where there's certain people who can do the writing and there's certain people who can do the rioting. And what's the relationship between the two? Mm. And bring me back to to the point that you raised earlier that I wanted to return to about who these publics are that we are engaging with. I yeah. mean, we, we're we in a space where the, the most publicly accessible spaces for dissemination of knowledge is either the newspaper, the radio or public mm. television. And the internet, even though it's allowed spaces like Twitter, blogs, and other what might be called informal uh, spaces for disseminating of knowledge, still have a limited scope because we're in a country where access to blogs and uh, social media still very much is limited to a small group. Absolutely. And I think it's part of the process of we, again, it's exclusion, exclusion and including who's in and who's out and who's allowed to have these spaces. I mean, recently, I even I, I think I was thinking about it more recently at this conference. Um, so our mothers, right, who, for me at least, a lot of the knowledge that I have in the work that I'm doing right now, in fact, is largely has been a, a consequence of the things that my mother has taught me, and, and my interest came out of that. But people wouldn't necessarily think of my mother as an intellectual because she hasn't ticked all the boxes. Mm. So I'm reading a lot of work in journals and in books. I'm like, but my mother taught this to me. But my mother kind of... We, 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 I've seen this before, but I can't reference my mother. I have to then reference these papers and these books because we've been told that this is the, the way that we produce knowledge or this is the way we package knowledge. And I'm really struggling with that idea because I think it's the limitation of this kind of who are these publics and who are the people who who have this idea of, you know, a blog or a newspaper or a radio because I think there are other lots of spaces that we, we, we limit ourselves to. For example, in the church, mm. um, you know, the, how, what are the different ways in which people are thinking about knowledge through the, the ways in which the church organizes itself? Um, the way people do imi That's a different way of, of kind of looking at knowledge because we, I guess, in, in more urban settings, we don't have a lot of access to imi or we don't kind of bring that into our public discourse enough then there's this idea that, it, you know, again, the whole binary of the rural and the urban, and therefore the rural people aren't necessarily the public. We don't even think of them, I guess, when we are writing these things. But And then it's, it's the urban people who have got access to all these things. So I'm really quite troubled, I guess, by who has access even to our knowledge or these articles that we produce or these interviews that we go to or these public platforms that we go to. And the point that you're raising about can I reference my mother um, is something that, as also somebody who's working in higher education, I'm constantly thinking about what are the kinds of academic poetics that we set up for students, what is allowed in the classroom, what kind of knowledge is deemed worthy of referencing. Mm. And I wanted to just to, to find out for you, in, in your engagements with various publics, how do you interweave your academic work um, into those spaces, or do you see them as quite different domains doing particularly different kinds of work? I mean, I think it's a work in progress for me. So one of the things that I've been trying to do is, and it's, I mean, it's very, very recent, where if I have written a paper, I guess, I try to turn it into something shorter and pithy so that I can write it in the form of a blog 
and usually someone from Radio will see it and I can go and have an interview. And that. So it's kind of using the various platforms that we have to make this work accessible or talking about it to friends or talking about it because my spaces, I guess, are family and church. And, and how do we bring those conversations out more and more in different contexts with different people that we in, in, interact with? But I guess to go back to the issue of the politics of referencing for me, um, I'm, I'm just really troubled by, you know, if you don't have a particular person in your paper, if it's about a particular issue and you don't reference it, I guess people kind of call it the founding fathers or you have to reference these, these guides or these seers who have gone before us. I think it's very limiting sometimes because the starting point is often then the past rather than different ways of thinking about things. And I don't know how to resolve it at the moment. But it, it, for me, it's definitely posing some serious limitations about moving the conversation about knowledge forward, about even talking about the colonial nature, perhaps, of how we think of knowledge and how we, we I guess, engage with this thing. Because I think for a long time, there's a tradition, I guess, even in intellectualism, before we talk about public intellectuals, there's a whole tradition and there's this assumption that if you break the tradition, well, then it's not intellectually rigorous enough. Completely correct. And I think the last thing that I just wanted to ask you about, which you've already mentioned, but I'd like you to kind of expand on it a bit more, how the work of engaging with publics outside of higher education is part and parcel of the work of decolonization within higher education. How do you see the relationship between the two? It seems quite obvious, but somehow we just struggle to do it. So in my mind, I guess, and I think a lot of this became clearer when I was a teacher in high school, and I constantly thought to myself, you know, the things that I teach in my classroom, someone has made a decision that this is the canon or this is the literature that we must teach. So someone out there, and it's usually, I guess, in academia, and it's supposed to somehow filter down to the schools. But there's this very clear idea that there are certain people who produce knowledge and then there are certain people who use that knowledge. And I, I, I just don't think it's very useful for me. I, I imagine the idea of, you know, decolonizing is having an openness to maybe reversing this, this, this production of knowledge to say, what if we flipped it? What if academics who are writing about education, in fact, started hearing from the students rather than treating students and teachers as subjects that mm. need to be studied and need to be told this is how you do things? We need to flip the whole thing on its head and, and, and find other ways of, of engaging with, um, with this idea of knowledge that everyone, in fact, does have knowledge, but yeah, I, I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking of this particularly perhaps from the, the perspective of um, education policy and the kind of top-down approach for me that intellectuals produce the policy and then teachers and students at the bottom just implement it. And I think it's a very destructive thing because now we constantly have this discourse of, oh, but, you know, oh, the, the problem is how it's being implemented. And like, but have you thought about these policies? Who decided that this is the way to do it? Did you just assume that, you know, if it's just university professors, then it's fine, and the hands are, are, are the ones that are that are doing it incorrectly? In, in it's the power structure or the power hierarchy of what we think about as knowledge. And I guess that going back to where I started about whose voices matter, um, and I, I would love to see more of a more cyclical approach to knowledge, perhaps, where it's not top-down, because quite, right now it's quite hierarchical. Mm. But if we do something that's cyclical to say, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a variety of voices here, and there are a variety of moments, right? So we can't only be focusing on, oh, 
Again, also taking in historical narratives or narratives that kind of didn't make it into what we can typically call mainstream. And so kind of constantly going back um, and looking for those voices and bringing them to the fore and using other voices right now that aren't coming to the fore and, and bringing them up. And, and a constant reminder about, I guess, the revolution of knowledge rather than it being something that is static, that is a one way from the knower to the one who knows less um, and not the other way around. I guess doing that in this idea of being intellectually rigorous, I don't even know what it means, but doing it in responsible ways, in meaningful ways, in ways that um, kind of push us forward in whatever aspect of the research that we're doing or the knowledge that we're producing so that we don't end up in, in, in the kind of static um, positions that we've seen, I guess, and that's why we're in this moment of decolonizing where we're saying, actually, let's break down some of these things we've been taught um, or we've been told this is the only way to do it because I think there could be so much more creativity in terms of the way that we think about knowledge and how to, to share that knowledge. And I think that is such an important and powerful point for us to end on. I, I definitely think we need to have you back on the show again because I think you've raised so many important issues for us to also in this time of alternative facts, fake news, and everyone's particular feelings mattering mm. more than, you mm. know, what the mm. material realities and lived realities might be for people. Intellectual uh, traditions are not only on, on the line, but also people's actual bodies and livelihoods depend yeah. on what we deem as valuable and important to share and know. So thank you so much for having us, Ata, and we are definitely going to do a follow-up episode where we explore these ideas further. Thanks, Nasipo. It's been really great. Richard Chellen, and I am a researcher. I think being a public intellectual there are, is outlined by three main responsibilities, such as I mean, knowledge, knowledge sharing, ability, and uh, the willingness. Public intellectual basically has a responsibility to awaken society while being aware of their own shortcomings, more or less of like using the skills that they have gathered to attain that level of, of being known as a uh, intellectual to to be more like agents of change. I think they, I believe they have a responsibility to to be the voice of reason in society, and uh, to challenge the norm, especially when the norm is contrary to the general good of the society. If, for example, challenge the norms of corruption, challenge the norm of gender-based violence, if it's seen as a normal in society, I think. Um, intellectuals is to to challenge that and to they have a role to in knowledge sharing and um, but also there is also a greater need for willingness as well. Very often we do find intellectuals who have the knowledge, who have the ability, but yet do not have the willingness either because they are restricted by uh, in institution, restricted by certain structures. Generally, I would say the, um, the responsibility of an intellectual is to be an agent of change and to challenge the norm. The 
The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jagger Malko created our jingles.